You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Hey, welcome to Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm really excited about it. Uh, as always, joined by my number one co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you feeling today? I'm a little chilly, Dick, but I'm <laughs> hanging in. It's a little, we're having our first cold snap here in Portland, but the sun is out, so spirits are high. Yeah, it's ironic because it was super chilly and today is a little bit warmer than it was the last couple of days, so, but it's still cold. <laughs> it is still cold. I'm so excited about our guest today. Oh, as am I, and uh, won't leave you waiting or worried about it. Our guest today is none other than Jackie Aranda Osorno from the SPL Center, which is the Southern Poverty Law Center. She's a staff attorney. Website, again, is splcenter.org. Um, Jackie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me here today. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And uh, let me just give you a little background on the Southern Poverty Law Center. Founded in 1971, Southern Poverty Law Center is an American nonprofit legal advocacy organization specializing in civil rights and public interest litigation. Also, the SPLC is the catalyst for racial justice in the South and beyond, working in partnership with communities to dismantle white supremacy, strengthen intersectional movements, and advance the human rights of all people. And if that's not a cause you can get behind, I don't know what it is, honestly. Um, Jackie, is you being a first-time guest, typically what we do is we get a little background, um, maybe kind of like your upbringing, what kind of led you on the path of getting involved with the SPLC. Um, so feel free to talk about that as much as you'd like. All right, that sounds good. So like you mentioned, I'm a staff attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, I identify as a Latinx um, queer woman who ended up in law school because I saw just fundamental injustice all around me um, from the time that I was fairly young. So um, my family immigrated from Mexico and I was fortunate enough to be born here. So throughout my childhood, I was able to see how legal systems worked to sort of designate people into categories and some people were worthy of something and some people were not. And so seeing sort of how our society organized people seemingly arbitrarily um, into different categories and seeing how, how those distinctions led to different outcomes really motivated me to think about the role of the law in creating or uh, creating justice or perpetuating injustice. And that's sort of how I ended up in law school. Um, by the time I made it to law school, I was really interested in the intersection of 
race and the criminal legal system and just carceral systems in general, including um, the immigration system. So I found my way to SPLC. This is uh, where I spent two years of my career right after I graduated from law school. I left to go do some immigration removal defense work. So I represented folks who were in deportation proceedings, got to have some experience representing individual people, um, and then made my way back to Alabama last year to continue doing some of our impact litigation work. That's incredible. And it sounds like from being from Mexico and just being involved in all that, you have kind of a more of an insight and kind of makes you more powerful in that in that realm of legal um, work, you know. Uh, so I think it informs my work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great. I mean, that that's what makes the best you know litigators, in my opinion, and people that you know are are fighting for the equal rights for people. You know, especially right now, it's kind of one of those. I, I feel like 2020 is just really everything is under the magnifying glass in terms of racial disparities and. Um, just all the craziness going on in America right now. I feel like more than ever, uh, it's kind of crystal clear what we're looking at. There's no, you know, the, the waters aren't muddied anymore, um, ironically. So um, we were going to originally go over a couple things uh, regarding the Southern Property Law Center. Uh, one, I kind of want to start a little bit on uh, sentencing issues. Uh, I know okay. you guys are really big on sentencing reform and um, just, you know, Stuff like that. Uh, basically, one of the things that just, I'm, I'm sure that you're probably familiar with it, but uh, I talked about it, I touched a little bit on the last show, was uh, in Louisiana, Fair Wayne Bryant, was, he received a life sentence for stealing a pair of hedge clippers, and he was recently paroled, finally, after a ton of advocacy and just really hard work down there. Um, I know that things are a little bit different in the South in terms of just the legal system, the judicial system, and especially the prison system, which we'll get into later. Um, what were your thoughts about this whole thing? I mean, is this, is this a normal kind of commonplace thing or is, is that just a, the exception, like a rare, rare circumstance? Unfortunately, it is not an exception. Um, our country really only knows how to address social problems in one way, and that is through punishment. That is through criminalizing behavior, through punishing behavior that has been criminalized, and to then warehouse and cage people um, with, with really no other recourse but to serve time and then like face any number of obstacles that will ensure that they cannot succeed. Like that is the model that we have adopted to deal with any number of issues. And that is something that we have seen um, a growth in after the, the war on drugs. We saw a criminalization of behavior relating to substance abuse, um, relating to mental health and to what some would classify as, as like low level nonviolent behavior which we then, not knowing how to deal with, did what we as a country knew how to do, and again, was criminalize and punish. And so we have ended up with a system that criminalizes a really wide range of conduct that criminalizes the existence of mental health issues, substance use, poverty, and disproportionately sentences people. So the example that you referenced is really tragic, but really not that unusual. We have currently, the country incarcerates 
maybe like one in five people that are incarcerated um, for a drug offense. And again, the, the disproportionality of the conduct to the amount of time that people are sentenced to is really astounding. Yeah, essentially, it's just like uh, it's, it's like a big business where almost like a vacuum cleaner, like they just want they don't care what it is, drug offenses, as long as it's a wide spectrum, they get you sucked in. That's the main thing. And then to keep you in is the other the critical thing for them. Um, it's to me, it seems like really fulfilling, just kind of doing work that can potentially dismantle this whole situation because it's, I mean, it's extremely, it's, it's kind of like David and Goliath situation almost in a way. I mean, uh, the stuff that we're looking at with the sentencing and just trying to reform sentencing, um, trying to, I mean, I know you guys are really like trying to advocate for prison alternatives. Um, I just, do you, it seems like when you bring about prison alternatives or alternatives to policing, stuff like that, it just kind of goes out the window. People don't even really want to hear about it. Uh, but these days, when you think of prison alternatives, what do you specifically like have in mind? That's a really great question. Um, and it's one that we spend a lot of time thinking because when you know, we have we have a goal of using sentencing reform, working towards sentencing reform to ultimately decarcerate and changing the laws to have shorter sentences is not the only way to do that. Like you said, we need to also talk about alternatives to incarceration, but we don't want to rebuild the same systems of inequality and oppression in a less harsh form. And you see that, for example, in the way that we came up with um, like community supervision, right? So instead of sending people to, instead of physically confining folks, we are, quote, allowing them the opportunity to remain in the free world under any number of restrictions that are trapping them in, into a lot of the same, again, systems of inequality and oppression. Um, and is that really significantly different than incarcerating someone? In a lot of ways, yes, they retain some of their fundamental liberty of movement, but in a way you're just making, you just found a slightly more acceptable version of incarceration. You're still trapping people in this system. So when we're thinking about alternatives, we need to, to think and strategize and be really creative to make sure that we really are moving away from building new systems that are just a slightly different twist on the old and really reimagining what it means to keep communities safe, to invest into people, into human beings so that they can work, so that they have some place to live, so that they can thrive. So criminal justice reform, you know, you can't do it by itself. You really have to be cognizant of how all the systems interact and, and really make sure that, that your strategies encompass the reality of the human experience, which is that we experience needs in different systems at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of seems like just when you're doing, uh, when you're thinking about prison alternatives, stuff like that, and uh, it's a two-pronged issue because on one hand, you have to get the general society to go along with it and feel like they're, uh, it's a good idea. And on, on the other side, you have to redo years and years of just fortification from the justice system, you know, just creating this airtight system that we have right now. I mean, it, it just, it, it, at times it feels like you're just sticking your finger in a dam, you know, 
and praying that you'll be able to do anything about it. It's, it seems very overwhelming to me just conceptually. Um, when we talk about better release mechanisms, um, what, what does that mean to you? Like in terms of, there's so many options, uh, for instance, what do, you, what do you think would be the most effective in terms of release mechanisms? Absolutely. So I think one of the main problems with, uh, with a lot of like release mechanisms and release options are the financial incentives that are embedded into them. So in a way, we are finding ways to allow people to, you know, to leave these cages, these warehouses. And there are so many costs associated with that, that you're essentially like having to find ways to continually buy your liberty. So when we're thinking about these mechanisms and we're thinking about who gets incarcerated and what like economic system they get released into, a, a release mechanism that has costs attached to it just necessarily is going to trap people into that same cycle of oppression. So I think being really critical about um, you know, fees and then how the failure to pay those fees triggers consequences. Um, it's something that's, that's really important to think about. And I think finding ways to eliminate those financial incentives would go a long way towards building a new system that is slightly more fair. So that's, that's, you know, one of the, one of the main ways that we can find, um, a new way out is to make sure it doesn't cost anything. And that's just not true right now. It's expensive to be on probation. It's yeah. expensive to have conditions um, of release that require you to seek a very specific kind of treatment. Um, it's expensive to have housing, um, especially when, you know, there are like restrictions on what kind of housing you can have. Um, why is it expensive? Yeah. And, Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always said, um, you know, the system's absolutely racist without doubt. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, no but question. It's, but it's classes first. First and foremost is classes. And uh, essentially, if you have money, you can play the game and you can, you know, it can go in your favor and it, can, it will go a lot better. But if you have no money, you're basically just in the machine like a wood chipper, essentially, and there's, you're helpless, you know, unless there's a crazy miracle that happens, like you're just going along the set path that they have for you. Um, or someone like the Southern Poverty Law Center is able to step in. Absolutely. <laughs> no. um, so at the Southern Poverty Law Center, how many cases do you guys take on typically in a year? Uh, I know the caseloads are a little different right now with COVID, but uh, in a typical just calendar year. I wish that we could do more because there's always more to do. Um, there's not a really great answer to your question because the way that our legal department is structured is into different practice areas. Um, so I work for the criminal justice reform group. Um, and traditionally we do very big uh, class action cases against correctional systems, um, against jails, against, you know, government institutions. And so those cases tend to be uh, pretty big. And, uh, you know, currently in our, in our Alabama group, we have two big cases. And 
the one case that I spent most of my time working on, we've been working on since 2014. Um, we have other groups like our economic justice group. They do a lot of work around fines and fees. So some of the work that I was doing, that I was, some of the stuff I was talking about earlier um, in relation to, you know, financial incentives in the criminal justice system. Um, they do work with fines and fees and bail reform, and they have more cases than we do. There are slightly smaller cases. They're also class cases. In general, the legal department at SPLC has done, like I said, like class action work, not a lot of individual representation work. So the numbers are pretty small, but hopefully the impact is big. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's class action is a, a wide spectrum versus an individual thing here and there. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I was going to transition into talking about prison conditions and kind of the stuff that you've, you've been working on. Um, Ebony Howard, who's the senior supervisor who originally we had a scheduling conflict but was going to uh, be interviewed today, did, she wrote an article um, talking about in 2017, Judge Myron Thompson declared the mental health care systems in Alabama prisons to be horrendously inadequate, which led to skyrocketing suicide rate amongst those who are incarcerated. Um, is this all kind of tied in with the work that you're doing right now that you've been working on for the last four years? Yes, that's right. So the opinion that you just referenced was um, one in our big class action case against the Alabama Department of Corrections, the case is Braggs versus Dunn. And the case brought a number of claims against the entire correctional system. It was system-wide, every, every major facility in the Alabama um, Department of Corrections. And one of the claims that we brought was an allegation that defendants failed to provide constitutionally adequate mental health care. There's also a claim that they failed to provide constitutionally adequate medical care. The case is really big. And somewhere along the way, the judge split those two claims into two, and we have been working on the mental health aspect of it since 2016. Well, we just, I know uh, we just recently had Mental Health Awareness Day. Mental Health Awareness Month was a while ago. But um, this is something that we don't really, I, I think we don't talk about in the news or just as a society in general, is just the challenge of dealing with mentally ill people and mental illness in general, especially how it's really, it's just much bigger in prison. It, I feel like prison is almost a place where mentally ill people can flourish and really get way worse in terms of their, their psychology. Um, and then on top of that, again, it's like compounding interest. It, it just adds to, you know, this and then that. And then next thing you know, it's essentially hell on earth for people that are suffering. Um, so the fact that you guys are really spearheading this and, and, and going for it is, is huge in my opinion. Um, we definitely, there is a need for humane and dignified treatment of incarcerated people, first and foremost, but I think the next level is the need for humane and dignified treatment of mentally ill incarcerated people. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we need to kind of go for the people that are the most vulnerable, and, um, and that's what's going on right now. Now, recently, or somewhat recently, you guys received two letters from the Department of Justice regarding violence and failure to protect incarcerated people. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, absolutely. So if I could just go back really quick, I just wanted to note that 
you know, mental illness is exists along the spectrum, and we have two main two main problems when we're talking about people with mental illness in the correctional system. First, you have people that that have some sort of mental health diagnosis, um, whose whose behavior has been criminalized in some way. They enter the facilities needing some level of mental health care, and they're not getting it. And that's one problem. But the other problem is that even when you're putting people who are, you know, quote unquote, mentally healthy into these facilities, it is almost impossible to stay to, to remain at that level of wellness. When you're throwing someone into solitary confinement for a week or a month or years, we have clients who have been in solitary confinement for over 10 years. That does something to you. Uh, you can start off again at, at some basic level of wellness, but this isn't just about people who enter the system needing some level of mental health care. This is really about anyone who's inside. I agree. I would say even, um, you know, on the spectrum where 10 years in solitary confinement is clearly going to create mental issues, you know, even just the process of being incarcerated for anyone creates a rift in identity and a rift in, um, you know, their connections to themselves and their family. And I think PTSD is pandemic for folks that have been incarcerated at the lowest levels and at the highest levels. Absolutely. And Dick, I'm sorry that I redirected from your question. Oh, no. I'm happy to talk about the DOJ investigation. <laughs> we as, can as talk well. about all of it. You got, you got time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm glad um, that you redirected. Well, let, let me tell you a little bit about the Department of Justice investigation. So Alabama prisons have just a very long history of being terrible in every respect of the way, not just in their failure to provide medical or mental health care, but really in the physical, like just terrible physical conditions of the facility themselves, in levels of violence, in the system's failure to protect the people that they're supposed to be, you know, that, that they're responsible for. So, The Department of Justice initiated an investigation into the uh, the men's facilities uh, in 2018, I think, their investigation started. And um, in early 2019, they issued a findings letter um, for the Alabama Department of Corrections. And that, that letter detailed how the state routinely violates the rights of the people that are incarcerated in those facilities by failing to protect them from violence and sexual abuse. That letter basically found that there was probable cause to believe that the Department of Corrections was violating the Constitution and and that letter is sort of a precursor to them either filing litigation or forcing the Department of Corrections to negotiate with them about those subjects. So the DOJ and the prison system started, you know, to discuss those things that did not lead to a lawsuit. And 
throughout, you know, they, they continued their investigation and then they recently issued a second findings letter finding that there was a pattern and practice of excessive force by correctional staff on incarcerated people. So you now have two findings letters from the Department of Justice about failure to protect from violence, about failure to protect sex from sexual abuse, about excessive pattern and practice of excessive force against incarcerated people, and a federal judge who has said the mental health care system is horrendously inadequate and incredibly understaffed. So you just have this perfect storm of basically anything that you think could go wrong in a prison. Yeah, absolutely. And not only is the mental health uh, situation horrendous and laughable, honestly, at how uh, ineffective it is, but also just the health system in general in prison is ridiculous. Like, literally, you you won't get any health care unless you're literally dying in prison. Um, even just, then, not always. Yeah, even then, it's a maybe. It's a toss-up, uh, which, is, which is craziness. And the other thing about the Department of Justice letters is, I mean, for how long now has the stereotype been that if you go to prison, you'll be sexually and physically abused? And, you know, I feel like just now it's kind of like somehow their hand was forced into actually looking into this. Um, what, what do you think the motivation was for them to start kind of opening Pandora's box in a way? I, I think a lot of it was that we have gotten to a point where what is happening in Alabama's prisons is almost impossible to ignore. I think the level of complaints and just horrifying anecdotes that, that they were hearing compelled them to, to really start looking into it. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's, they have a responsibility to protect folks in in institutions. And I think Alabama just presented a set of conditions that, again, it, it's just impossible to look away from. Things are so bad. Yeah. And honestly, I'm wondering if this is mostly a Southern thing as well. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but uh, rap artists Jay-Z and Meek Mill have been filing lawsuits against uh, Mississippi prisons for barbaric treatment and just completely inhumane conditions and stuff like that. So obviously prisons are horrible everywhere. Uh, up here, we have our own issues with uh, having like one of the oldest prisons in the United States with Oregon State Penitentiary and the whole COVID uh, just mishandling of the situation. But it's something about the Southern prisons, it feels almost like it's, they're on steroids in terms of just how horrific everything is. Uh, do you think there's, is it coincidental or is there a specific reason? I mean, I know in Alabama, uh, a lot of in, me trying to wrap my mind around it was the prisons are overcrowded. There's not enough staff to deal with it. So it's like the perfect storm for everything to go this way. I mean, you got to think if you're a corrections officer and you're working in a over populated Alabama prison, you almost have to be, if you're not sadistic going into it, you start developing those kind of inhumane thought, uh, thought processes it just you become a product of your environment so to speak um i'm sorry for that long-winded uh question but is is it something like specifically about the southern states or is it just uh, you think it's the funding or is there another factor that we're not taking into consideration well i i will say that the south 
as we know, has a very long, violent and racialized history. And that is a history that Alabama and a lot of other Southern states have not really confronted. And I think you see that sort of animating, uh, you know, they, it continues to animate the politics and because the politics are what they are, there's just no appetite to address any of these problems in a way that there might be in other places. But I will also caution against, you know, villainizing the South, because as as you just acknowledge, these prison condition problems really exist all over the country. Yeah, absolutely. And just for some reason, the South just you, you feel like you hear about chain gangs and more mistreatment in general down there. I was wondering if there's some kind of correlation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I think these systems, you know, these political and economic systems are so entrenched here. And again, people by and large have not really reckoned with that very violent and racialized past. So there's no real appetite to push in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that note, I think we should take a small commercial break and we'll be right back this hour of the startup radio network is supported by bridges to change bridges to change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions mental health poverty and homelessness they use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination mass incarceration barriers to health care and inequitable economic opportunities Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. And thank you for joining us again. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Jackie Aranda Osorno, uh, staff attorney at Southern Poverty Law Center. The website's splcenter.org. And I just want to give a shout out to the, uh, the South Southern Poverty Law Center because 30 years ago, in 1990, uh, there was a big case. Uh, basically, in 1988, Mula Geta Saran was murdered viciously by three skinheads. Um, so 1990, 30 years ago, um, the white Aryan resistance leader at the time was a guy named Tom Metzger. He was one of the most notorious white supremacist skinhead leaders of all time. Southern Poverty Law Center. You know, and one of the things about the Law Center is, you know, you're in Alabama. You'd be like, oh, okay, it's just a kind of a Southern thing. No, they reached out to Portland, Oregon, came all the way up from Montgomery, Alabama. And they used an uh, innovative legal strategy to hold Metzger and his organization liable for the wrongful death of Mulag gets a Saran and um, effectively putting the racist hate group out of business with a $12.5 million verdict. And uh, that was huge. That was world news. That's still relevant to this day. 30 years ago, uh, racial tension is still existent. But um, the fact that Southern Poverty Law Center stepped up and did the right thing, um, that's really, really impressive to me. So, um, I mean, Jackie, it just sounds like you're really working with a spectacular organization. Um, 
It's work that brings terrific awareness where there may not have been that awareness. Places like Portland really like to think that they're incredibly progressive and not racist, whereas places like Alabama, we were talking a little bit ago about being careful not to villainize the South because we tend to see the South as where racism is rampant, whereas it just looks different in different places, but it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, actually, Saran's son came to visit 30 years after the original trial, which was in uh, 2018. And um, that was right around the time with the Max stabbings with Jeremy Christensen, where he attacked Muslim women. And so it's like all that time and the judgment and everything. But still, this is entrenched in kind of the roots of our society in general. You're right. It's not the South. It's the entire country. And it's an issue that it, we still have a long way to go on, uh, in my opinion. And uh, speaking of that, um, Jackie, I kind of want to transition a little bit into racial disparities. Um, we're kind of at the history of race at the intersection of the criminal justice system um, with oppression and disenfranchisement uh, of people of color. Uh, what has your experience been with that, Jackie? So I, I think what we see is that interaction with the criminal legal system leads, like you said, to disenfranchisement, um, leads to any number of consequences. And again, that just perpetuates in almost every legal and social economic system, like different flavors of oppression. And one informs the other in a way that is just seems inevitable. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems so transparent now. I mean, Black people as a whole take up uh, 13% of U.S. residents, but they take up 40% of the incarcerated population. So um, if you look at statistics, they're not committing crimes more than, you know, Caucasian people. It's just very, very visible as to what's going on. It's, it's outlandish, honestly, in my opinion, uh, just the disparities. Uh, I, I'm not really sure what kind of weapons we can form to kind of solve this problem or, or deal with it. it. It seems overwhelming at times. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think the first thing that we as a society need to do, and it's not something that we are good at doing is confronting the racialized way in which we have, you know, in which the, this country has grown um, the racialized way in which we've established different systems. And you can't fix the race problem if you won't talk about the race problem. And, you know, that, that really just is the first step. And so long as we don't acknowledge those racial disparities, as long as we don't acknowledge that those racial disparities multiply, then you can't, you can't really do anything about it. But even when folks are talking about the racial issues, we have an incredibly militarized and racially motivated police system. So it's kind of like there's all these pieces at play that even when folks are, are talking about the system, it seems like there's an equal and opposite force, including the police force, that is pushing back against it. Do you guys have thoughts on, on how to crack that open? Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. This is about, you know, the, these systems are about power. Um, when we're talking about potential solutions, we need to think about 
redistributing that power. We need to figure out what systems we need to figure out who key players are and what their role is in reinforcing inequalities. And the police is a great example of that. So again, when we are strategizing and brainstorming and really imagining what the world could look like, we need to be honest about the role of race. We need to be honest about the way we need to be honest about who holds power and how power operates and find ways to redistribute that. Um, going back to, to release mechanisms, if you are just moving people out of a prison and you've changed really no other condition, the power imbalances are the same. You haven't created anything that is starting to shift the power balance in such a way that those that are in power continue to be in power and continue to perpetuate the same systems of oppression. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like trickle-down economics, essentially. You know, it starts from the very <laughs> beginning or it starts from the root and it goes all the way up and until we deal with those problems and nip that in the bud, like we essentially are just swimming against the tide. Um, I wish I had more specific answers um, <laughs> because thinking about how to dismantle power, power structures is really hard. And if, if we had been able to figure it out, I think our world would look a little bit different right now. So that's, you know, that's one of my jobs. That's, that's one of y'all's jobs too, uh, to, to reimagine what the world would look like. And I think it needs to start by talking about race and talking about power. We were hoping you would come on today, Jackie, and have all of the yeah. answers to how we can solve <laughs> these problems. Yes, indeed. It's a, it's, it really does take people thinking about it and working on it and an incredible amount of creativity and resilience and, um, you know, like widespread access to hope that there really can be another way that while we haven't reimagined it yet, it's out there. It really is. It's, it's difficult sometimes to keep our, our hopes up in the face of a power structure that really, really does not want to release that power. Absolutely. And I think this is a good time to really remind ourselves too, that we all have both the ability to imagine and the ability to participate in collective movements. These aren't questions that lawyers like myself are going to solve. Um, I would love to be a part of the solution, but I'm not really the one that's going to, you know, radically transform this country, radically transform these systems. It's, it's going to be me and you and your listeners. And we need to, you know, elevate the voice of impacted people. We need to, we need to empower impacted people. We need to support collective action and lawyers are not going to save us, but we're here to help. Yeah. Lawyers are kind of like the glue that binds everything together that makes it possible for the vehicle to move, but uh, it's going to take entire community to, to change things for sure. Um, Southern Property Law Center's on the cusp of celebrating 50 years of just being in business and making significant positive impact on the um, communities. Uh, where would you like to see the Southern Property Law Center in the next 50 years, ideally? That's a great question. I think, so one thing I mentioned is that, you know, our legal advocacy has been very litigation focused. We do a lot of class action work. 
Um, we've recently started engaging more and more in policy work, but again, historically, the, the kinds of legal work that we have done have been pretty litigation focused. And the direction in which I think we're currently moving and that I would love to see us, you know, continue moving in, in that direction is finding ways to supplement our litigation work to support collective action. We need to find ways other than what we already all know how to do well. We, we know how to file lawsuits. Uh, we certainly shouldn't stop, but that's not the only thing we could and should be doing. And so, for example, in our Alabama office, we've recently started a, a, an individual representation program. We represent folks that are up for parole hearings, and that work has involved, you know, representing our individual clients, making connections to halfway houses and substance treatment programs and really approaching the work in a way that is different from what we've done before, but complements what we do. Um, so I, I think just a movement toward recognizing that legal work complements other collective action, it complements organizing and plugging in and making sure that we are part of a coalition of not just lawyers, but just community members who are pushing forward for the same vision. I think we definitely have, you know, we, we have the desire to be there. And I, and I hope that that's the kind of work that we're doing in 50 years. That's beautiful. For our listeners that are listening, and of course, you know, it's common to feel these problems are too big or unsolvable, and they can weigh heavily on folks. What would you advise are some small things some folks could do to feel like they're part of the solution? So one thing that I think everybody needs to do is, you know, if you're people need to be educated about what's happening in their backyards. So if you feel like these problems are really big and they're happening somewhere else, you have some work to do. And there are a number of resources that are available to folks who want to learn more. And I think, again, a good place to start is your own backyard, your own community. Learn about what is going on and then find the community groups that are doing the work that you care about. These problems are so big, but there are people that are already doing the work. So it seems daunting to get engaged, but you're, you don't have to go out there and do the work by yourself. You just have to figure out where people are that are already doing this and figure out how to plug in and you start small and it might feel small to you, but you might be making a huge difference for somebody else. There's some real proven um, data too on the psychological effect of doing something very small towards something that feels very daunting and upsetting to you. You know, like they say, if you really concern that donation of $5 a month, if that's all you can afford may feel small to you, but it's proven that the psychological effects are actually quite large and worrying and feeling really stressed and paralyzed is not helping anyone. So that freeing up of psychological space is actually incredibly valuable. Thank you. For yeah. That. The other thing, of course. The other thing I would say is 
that I would just encourage people to learn more about the concept of mutual aid and, you know, to find a, a mutual aid organization if one exists in your community or to really learn about the concept of mutual aid and embrace it for yourself and find ways to help folks in your community. And I say this because so many of the issues around the criminal legal system are founded in our, sin, our sense of, of safety and wellness. And so thinking critically about the criminal legal system necessarily involves thinking about what does the world look like where I am safe and my neighbors are safe, where I am healthy and my neighbors are healthy. And can you, can you do something to make that happen? And you may not think that that is work that, you know, goes to the heart of some of these big issues, but I think it's truly transformative work and it's something that everybody could do. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you guys are currently accepting donations on the website. Uh, if people listening right now want to donate to the Southern Poverty Law Center, how, how would they go about doing that? Just Is there a link on the website? Is that what it is? Yep, I think uh, you, you can go on the website and there should be a donate button. Okay, makes sense. Um, and the website, again, is splcenter.org. Uh, hypothetically, let's say I'm an attorney or I just passed the bar, uh, or maybe I'm a district attorney that wants to cross over. How do you go about actually working or being a part of the Southern Poverty Law Center? Like what advice would you give to attorneys looking to kind of make a difference and be a part of your organization? I, I think if you have a firm commitment to anti-racism and to dismantling white supremacy, we we are a place where you can come learn if that's not work that you are affirmatively doing. This is a place where we could use your skills and your passion. Um, we, I, some of my colleagues are former prosecutors. Some of my colleagues formerly worked for corporate law firms. And it is really about the, the commitment that you have right now to working to further our vision and our mission. So as long as you have those principles, by all means apply. I know that we're currently hiring. That's great. And how many attorneys currently are working or affiliated with the law center? I'm not exactly sure. It, it's a little bit hard for me to get a sense of it because we have different offices and, and different groups, but I think we have about 100 attorneys working for the center currently. Yeah, that's a lot of... And there's things. never a shortage of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Um, so essentially, we asked where you'd like to see the last 150 years. Uh, how about you personally? I mean, there's so many good causes. And especially when we're talking about racial disparities, uh, there's so many different spectrums. Um, in 10 years, where would you like to see yourself? Like, Obviously, uh, the class action suit you're working on right now for prison conditions is four years in. It'll probably be a couple more years until that gets... Uh, situated, if I'm not mistaken, hopefully sooner than that. Um, but what kind of, what specific disparities would you like to kind of spearhead and maybe see yourself tackling and being a part of um, uprooting in the next decade or so? Yeah, so I will say in relation to this particular case, um, I would like for it to not be an active litigation like it is currently. And the only reason that's a fear is that there are prison condition cases in other states that 
have been litigated for decades. So, for example, in California, there are similar cases about medical and mental health care that are going into like the 30 year mark. They're almost they're they're almost as old as me. So I definitely would not like that to be the case here. I, I would hope that in 10 years, the the, the prison system in Alabama looks, looks differently than it does right now, that this case isn't necessary. In general, I think I would love to live somewhere where I can see a little baby and their color of their skin is not going to tell me whether or not they are going to live past the age of five, whether they are going to go to school, whether they're going to get expelled, whether they're going to end up in a situation of homelessness, whether or not they're going to go to prison. Um, I would love to live in a world where I feel more confidently that anyone would have a fairly similar opportunity to reach a level of safety and wellness. But I have to tell you that that's a big dream for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, that was a dream 70 years ago. Or, you know. <laughs> Keep it alive. <laughs> Keep it alive. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, what's crazy is, you know, we're talking about uh, all this other reform. Like it sounds like, I mean, with the 30 year thing, 40 year thing, it's ridiculous. I almost feel like we need some kind of legal reform as well. I mean, there's no reason that these things need to be just aged out like that. Uh, it's just, it's kind of, you almost feel like people are just milking it and their, their hearts not, aren't really in the right place sometimes when you hear stories like that. Um, yeah, so Jackie, is there anything else you'd like to promote at all or talk about uh, before we end the podcast today? Not really. Y'all asked me such great questions and it was so great to have an opportunity to talk about anything from prison conditions to racism to mutual aid, just a really great conversation. I guess I would just reiterate that I hope that anyone that's feeling really overwhelmed by these issues, but is really interested in doing something about it, really takes it to heart that there is something that everybody can do in this movement. And it can feel small, but if you're doing it and your family members are doing it and your friends are doing it, pretty soon it becomes a big action with a big impact. Yeah. I mean, it's all about just creating that momentum. And uh, it's one and step at a time. don't give up. Keep hope alive. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hope is a practice is what I've learned. And a choice. Sometimes you have to get up every day and act as if. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of times it can seem very overwhelming, but um, inevitably you're doing the right thing and just keep up the good work. Thank you so much for doing this and dedicating your life to it. I mean, uh, I'm sure it's going to impact a ton of people positively throughout the, throughout the years. And uh, that's, what, that's what it's all about, in my opinion. Even um, just I'm, learning so about what organizations me. like this are doing is, an, is a vehicle for remembering to be hopeful. So a personal thank you for real, Jackie. This is, it's always great to be able to interview people that are really doing the work. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed our time together. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Love to have you as a guest again uh, sometime in the future if possible. Uh, once again, our guest was Jackie Aranda Orsono. 
from the Southern Poverty Law Center website, splcenter.org, and you can donate. Click that donate button on the website anytime, and definitely check out more of the great work they're doing. Um, again, thank you to all the staff here. Thank you, Meg and Alon. Remember to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time on StartupRadioNetwork.com. Hope you guys have a safe and happy Halloween, and I'll see you next time. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.